and welcome to the Kenyans Are Calling podcast. I'm Charles Jocelyn, your host for the show. I would like to thank everybody who came out to North Wash and joined us for the first birthday party celebration. We had so much fun. It's kind of weird to me to have fans than people that want to meet me because I'm typically kind of a little, little, I'm an introverted extrovert, I think. Um, honestly, kind of weird to have people come up and be like, you're Charles, you do the show. Um, kind of getting used to it, but that was really, really fun to have people that I've never met that just listen to the show come there and celebrate with me. So my heart is so full. I just want to thank everybody that uh, turned up for that. We had so much fun. I, we did, um, my group did Blarney on Friday, and then we did um, Shillelagh and Hogwarts on Saturday. I was having issues with my sciatica, so I had to not do a canyon on Sunday, unfortunately. But Tom took um, the rest of the group over to Shenanigans, and they did Shenanigans. The first day they did... Um, one of the hogs, I want to say Miss Piggy or something like that. Um, and then part of the group, one, two people, I guess, did um, Witch's Cauldron, which is a canyon that I actually hadn't heard of until then. And so I need to do some more research. And once my back is healed, get back out there and do that one. It sounded like a great time for them. So anyway, boy, those canyons in Northwash are skinny. I'd kind of not really forgotten because of my shenanigans issue, but... I miss those super tight slots. It's been a couple years since I've been able to get out there. Uh, so anyway, I'm just still just kind of on my canyon high from, from coming back from a great weekend. So you guys know how that goes. A couple things before we get into the interview. I want to shout out to my new Patreon members. You know, it takes a little bit of time for me to edit each of these episodes and to... Just create the content that I do, and it's completely 100% listener-supported at this moment. I don't have any sponsors, uh, so it's all just through my Patreon. So if you feel like you know this brings you value, or if you want to just join in on our monthly Canyon chats, which I feel are really fun, we just sit and talk like an hour, hour and a half about our favorite canyons, about our last month. We had Glacier Black Gear on, and they told us about their new products and the things that they have coming up in the future, which was pretty cool. And then shout out to them. They actually started supporting me on my Patreon, so that's pretty awesome. Um, and I have a bunch of different levels on there, so you can just go ahead and donate whatever you feel like this podcast is worth to you. Um, I also only post on Patreon who my interviews are going to be with and give you the opportunity to ask questions. So if you would like to know who I'm going to interview and want to have some input on that, Patreon is where you can do that. I feel like the people that are helping support me deserve to have those benefits. So another way that you can help me out if you don't want to do it financially is you can do a review for me on I think mostly Apple Podcasts. Spotify doesn't let you do reviews. Um, but the reviews kind of help other people find out about my podcast and know who I am. Um, I also am doing a contest until March 1st. If you share your favorite episode with a friend and tag me in it so I know that you had done that, then I'm going to put you in a drawing. And the prize is going to be for a 120-foot Canyon Fire rope. And then... If we got a lot of people that have shared, because I'm really just trying to grow the show at this point, 
Um, then I'm going to add some more prizes. So you'll have an opportunity to win a shovel bot and maybe books, something like that. So please share with friends. The more you share, the more entries you'll get. Um, and it helps me grow my show. Other ways you can support the show is with my website. I have stickers and beer glasses and dog tug toys on there. Um, so if you are interested in any merch like that, the canyons are calling.com. If you have an idea for the show, um, anyone that you would like to see on, you can email me at the canyons are calling at gmail.com. Okay, I have rambled on enough, <laughs> and you guys probably really just want to hear about Danielle's canyoneering experience internationally. So I am going to stop rambling and let her tell you about her experiences. Enjoy. Hey, Danielle, could you just introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and how you got into the outdoors? Hi, yeah. Um, so my name is Danielle Monroy, and I am actually a, a director of a small preschool in Santa Barbara, California. Um, and I'm a canyoneer, um, which is uh, my favorite sport that I discovered back in 2014 um, during a family trip to Zion uh, in Utah. And um, I can tell you all about that story. But uh, my husband and I both canyoneer together, and we have been in 18 different, no, 19 different countries for canyoning and, um, and hit up pretty much most of the spots in the United States in one way or another um, and really enjoy it. So, yeah. That's incredible. 19 different countries. Yeah. Wow. So that's mostly what we're here to talk about today is um, your International Canyon experience, as okay. well as um, the CAC. Mm -hmm. So I don't know which you would prefer to talk about first. Um, well, let me just uh, mention first the, the CAC. Um, so okay. I've been on board of the um, CAC for, I think I'm in my third, second or third term now. And it, uh, we represent, it's the Coalition of American Canyoneers. Um, we represent canyoneering enthusiasts here in the United States. Most uh, countries that are canyoneering destinations have their own association or organization. Um, and all of those organizations have uh, a parent organization that um, uh, puts on a, a RIC or a rendezvous every year in a different country. And um, for all of our international travels, we have actually only gone to one official RIC, um, which was the one in Ticino a few years ago, pre-COVID. Um, and there will be a RIC this year in Brazil, um, which I would very much like mm -hmm. to attend if COVID uh, allows for sane travel. Um, but the uh, Coalition of American Canyoning here in the United States does a whole bunch of different things um, that are really useful, uh, invisible perhaps to the average canyoneer, um, but are helping to keep your canyons open by working with land managers and land partners to keep access free um, and available. Uh, we do education. We have a website with lots of um, useful tools and um, a list of guides and other organizations and contact information all over the world if people are interested in traveling. 
um, or getting training. And um, we do quite a bit of conservation. So when we are alerted to um, an issue, say, for example, graffiti in Southern California or a trash dump happening in somewhere in Arizona or Utah, um, we'll organize a, um, a conservation effort and we'll work with the land managers to make sure that we have um, official protection response, you know, uh, permission to make that happen. Um, in particular, there's a lot of issues going on in the last couple of years in the Grand Canyon area. And so we have some active board members who have been working really hard to make sure that um, canyoneering is kept in the um, in the, the dialogue of ensuring access for uh, people here in the U.S. And that's like working, like Rich working with people with the um, pack rafts and things like that, right? All of that. You know, sometimes we're working with uh, native tribes. Um, uh, that that's kind of been a big issue, actually. I forgot about that. Yeah, it has. I mean, uh, yeah. anybody lower water holes um, has done so uh, because some of the board members on the CAC have put in hours of delicate and careful negotiation with uh, the Coconino County Sheriff's Office and the the uh, tribes there in that area. I'm not sure if you know, I know earlier in 2021, a few of the canyons were closed because there was some trash and graffiti left behind by canyoneers. Do you know if that ever got resolved? Um, I think that most of those issues have been resolved. Um, the, the last board meeting that I attended, there wasn't any ongoing issue that was discussed, but um, uh, those are, it's, it's like uh, sticking your finger in a dam. We're, we're continuously working to, um, you know, keep land managers happy. I have to say, um, in general, when there's trash and graffiti in canyons, it's the canyoneers who discover it and clean it, but we're not the ones that put it there. I think that a lot of those things are more from uh, because they're, they're often at the base of canyons where hikers have access when they're coming bottom up. But in general, canyoneers, our, our pedagogy is that we are enjoying these places because we have so much love and respect for the wild, for nature, and for getting into places where there are no evidence of, of you know, society and civilization. Um, nobody would relish the... 4,000 foot approaches and scrub brush and, and rocks and, and all of the, the uh, uh, hassle and hard work that we do to get into these wild places if what we wanted was just to, to tag a wall. Um, so I, I feel like in general, most, most of the uh, conservation efforts that I've been involved in, um, perhaps the canyoneering community was alerted to it. Um, but in general, my feeling on it from what I've seen in, in the years I've been on the CAC board is that the damage had been done by a non-canyoneer. So I would I would hate to think that a canyoneer would ever do that. And I've never seen evidence in particular myself, but it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. It just means <laughs> that I'm, I'm gonna live in blissful ignorance of that. Unfortunately, where I live, um, due to guide companies taking ignorant people to places, I see it. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, uh, too often. So yeah. maybe I'm tainted, but <laughs> I feel like it's a great learning time for the guides to educate people at that moment. But unfortunately, I see it a lot here in beginner guided canyons. <laughs> in Utah, you definitely have more guiding going on. I think that, that mm -hmm. 
most of the guide companies I would hope have have more respect uh, for for the the properties that they're being able to to use. Yeah. Um, but you know, sometimes you have illegal guiding or uh, unofficial guiding going on that that you know um, is outside of the respectful portion of our field. You know, I mean, my my first canyoneering experience going going back um, to how I got started is my family wanted to take a, a post college vacation, and my my two children and us, and and so we had asked a friend of ours did a lot of travel. Where's the most beautiful place in the world you've been? And they said Zion and Utah, the national parks. So we planned a family vacation out there and I got on Google and the first thing that popped up was Zach, Zion Adventure Company. And okay. so we contacted them and they put us into the uh, Trans-Zion hike and then they put us into um, some, some classes and we went and did Middle Echo and Keyhole and um, so I've, I've always, when people ask me about getting into the sport of canyoneering, um, there's a, a school here in Southern California that I recommend, um, Uber Adventures. I think they're the only official school in Southern California, um, but they also have branches all over the place now. Um, but then if you're going to, if you really want to get into the sport and you can travel, Zion Adventure Company and taking a class there is just such a great way to get into the sport um, because that's what they do. And I think that those are guides that really uh, take good care of their clients and take good care of the, the, the land. And um, Tom Jones has an affiliation with them and, and has an affiliation with them. And um, he's, you know, uh, the guy that wrote the guidebook and, and has a lot of the uh, equipment that he manufactures that we use in the sport. And um, I feel like, uh, you know, obviously, because that's where I took my first class, I have a special connection to um, that particular guide business and that particular canyon uh, area, um, which is just outstanding. I do agree. Zion Adventure Company does a great job. Zion Guru also. There's many places to get classes and education. Yeah. But are you just got it? You really have to find one of the ones that is um, respectable, and yeah. there's plenty of them to find. But uh, For sure. I was just going to say, in the United States, we don't really, we don't actually have a system for licensing guides. Um, in the, in most of Europe, uh, or at least in the larger areas where people do canyoning, like um, Spain, Italy, Switzerland, uh, guides must be licensed, and it is uh, extensive training um, and very hard to come by, uh, is what I've heard for depending on the country you're in, to actually get that kind of um, license and certification to be a guide. For the sport um so it's different here in the u.s it's a little bit more um wild west yeah i feel like also in other countries guides are a little bit more of a respectable career choice it's Where, like yeah, here it's when i when i told my family i was going to quit my job at a pharmaceutical company to work for a guide company they were like what are you doing you know you've got 401k you have vacation you have blah 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 and i was like but i need to find my soul i need to find adventure like this is what i really want and i actually was making more money and my soul was happier and you know they're just looking at me like i'm a dirtbag so well you know i mean my daughter's a climber so uh if you were to call her a dirtbagger she'd probably consider it a, a compliment just in the sense that like you know if you give up uh capitalism and luxury for uh 
uh, a sport or an activity that feeds your soul, which being outdoors and, and canyoning or, I mean, uh, there's lots of sports that feed people's souls. Um, but uh, there's, to me, no greater respect for someone because then you're a happy human being and then that makes me people around you happy. So, mm-hmm. uh, yeah. 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 Ultimately I'm glad I followed my heart. So it led me to this podcast and <laughs> working for Tom. <laughs> okay. Um, do you want to talk any more about the CAC projects and what they have done? No, I think we're good on that. I mean, uh, we have a roundup, uh, the SoCal canyoning Facebook group, which is actually extremely large and active. Um, has a roundup that we used to do every year and uh, we're going to do one again uh, the first weekend in April for the first time since this whole COVID thing started Um, and hopefully we'll have nice water and the canyons will be flowing Uh, but we are going to do a a raffle for the CAC uh, which we've done I think two other times and they were both really successful so if people want to know more about that or they want to be involved in the raffle um, they can go to that uh, SoCal Canyoning Facebook group. It's easy to find and uh, get in touch with me and I'll tell them what we're doing. I will have a link to that in our show notes as well. Great. Thank you. Um, So let's talk about some of your favorite international canyons. So, you know, my international friends will uh, shake their heads when I say that it is not Ticino. Um, I, I think Ticino has amazing canyons and they're lovely and um, uh, they are absolutely the best in the world. Uh, but that said, my uh, most amazing visual candy moments in, in any canyon have been um, in Italy um, and uh, in Spain. I have a deep love of narrow canyon hallways with azure and blue and aqua and teal water and the rock and the stone uh, colors in Italy um, are just exquisite and the water in Spain is exquisite. Um, so we've done we've done trips um, pretty kind of all over the world and so, um, there's places that we've been that I don't like. I'm not a big fan of Costa Rica. Um, a lot of people love it and I think it has some very, very good canyons. Um, but it's a little bit like Death Valley with jungle. It's, it's, it's hiking up an approach and then repelling a big cliff and then hiking out of a jungle. It's, it doesn't have that, um, uh, slotty feel. And I feel like, uh, when, when the canyons that we've done, um, for those that have not done European canyons, but have been in Utah, that narrow slot that you get when water and weather etch through sandstone, um, that kind of narrow feel where you're looking at the light and the canyon is organic and shaped uh, and curves as the walls um, ascend away from you, you get those in, in Italy, uh, in Northern Italy, um, but the the rock is different, and it's it's white or gray or striped with marble and coloration, and um, and the water is very green, um, and the canyons are not as dark; they're not as closed in. But uh, so you're doing that same feel of a real narrow canyon, but it's got water in it. And there's waterfalls and jumps and slides, and 
Uh, I just, I love it. Um, uh, Albania, I would say Albania is probably one of those uh, experiences that if you go with uh, Pascal Van Dun, um, you will have the best possible canyon experience that a person could have, I think, internationally. Um, the food is amazing. The country is primitive. The, um, the, uh, the canyons have big rappels and beautiful water and narrow and dark passageways. And it is extraordinarily unexplored. Um, when we went, we were only, I think, the first group to go in after the canyons had been opened and discovered. Um, and there probably have not been that many groups going through, maybe one or two a year, but um, it's a very recent area. So um, I would say Albania is one of the top countries we ever went to um, after Italy and Spain. And Spain, my husband and I go to Spain every year for canyoning. And we were just there. We went to Mallorca. And um, I can tell you a little bit about that. <laughs> yeah, let's hear about you had an epic trip coming home, especially. But the yeah. canyons looked really beautiful, and you found one of your top ten, I hear. I did find one of my top ten. So Fosca is absolutely world class. Um, and for me to find a top ten um, is a thing because, uh, I mean, it has – so when people – I love to ask people that I've met for the first time in a canyon, what's your favorite canyon? Because it tells something about them, especially if they answer – the way that I do, which is, well, it depends. Because your favorite canyon is impacted by the weather that day and the group you were with and your mind, your mental health mood of that, of that moment. Uh, if you are in, if you're in a horrible mood, like I did one of the most beautiful canyons I've ever done was Gata Fiara in uh, Costa Rica. I was super sick and I was in a terrible mood. And so even though I can appreciate that it was a gorgeous canyon, it's not in my top 10. Um, but uh, yeah, so it's hard to make my top 10 list. Um, and it, it, they very much have to do with the mood that I'm in. Um, but that one probably is, is at the bottom of the top 10, but it's up there. Um, so we went, I've always wanted to go to Mallorca. And our vacation time has never fit. This year, we for our vacation, we went to back to northern Spain and did some some canyons in the Pyrenees and in France. And I um, I didn't think we would make it to Mallorca, but my husband has a vacation in March, and um, and then he, and he also has uh, the Christmas break. And normally March is like the end of the Mallorca season, but every year that I've wanted to go, it was dry. And you want to do those canyons when they have uh, water. And it's it's like, uh, it's kind of like heaps with water. You you have this magic moment when the canyon might be full and flowing, but not flash flooding. And so running a canyon when it's in its like, you know, easy mode or optimal mode. Um, you know, if you live here, you just wait till that happens and get in your car and go. But it's a little different if you're going to fly to, you know, some... Balearic Island in the middle of the Mediterranean takes a little more planning. So right. <laughs> a couple weeks before Christmas, they had a huge rainstorm. And we saw some pictures online of, of the, the guys out there, the Span Spanish uh, canyoneers, and it just looked epic. 
And um, I have a friend, Kathy O'Dowd from Andorra that we ran some canyons with recently in Spain. And I reached out to her and said, you wanna do it? And she said, yes. And so off we went and we ran a week of canyons, which, you know, for Europeans, dry, going that far for a week of canyons is insane. But, you know, over here, we all understand it. We, we don't have a lot of vacation time. So that's, that's what you get. So, um, yeah. yeah, so we left on like a Wednesday, the week before Christmas, and then spent the whole week running canyons. And they were amazing and they were beautiful. One of them, uh, you you run this beautiful, tight, slotty canyon with with just gorgeous, grippy limestone rock, and then then the water is just azure and green, and there's jumps and slides, and you get to the end, and the the last pool is deep blue because it's the ocean. So you're looking down the canyon and you see green pool, green pool, green pool, blue pool. And you smell the ocean and you hear it. And the way out of the canyon is to go up a Via Ferrata and then hike out. It's just, it was such a fantastic camp. Um, uh, really, really great. So, you know, we had this wonderful time. And yeah, so we, we finished our vacation and uh, um, I we go to the airport. And, they you know, to, to get in and out of Spain is a little harder than a lot of European countries. Um, they're very strict with their COVID protocols. Um, so, and we knew all that and we had all the right documentation and, and we had an appointment to do the PCR test at the airport on the way out and I failed. So I tested positive for COVID and, uh, felt fine. But, um, for people that know me, I don't own a cell phone. So my husband and I travel with his cell phone, but now we have to separate because the Spanish guards are taking me off to put me in a quarantine facility and my husband needs to get through the airport and go home. And so at the last minute he was, he was going to take the phone. And then at the last, because, you know, you need your phone for the QR codes and to make it through the, the airport. But the, the woman that tested us, uh, she went and made copies really quick, paper copies of Brian's COVID results so that he could get through the airport. And he shoved the phone in my hand and off I went. And they put me in an ambulance and took me to this, um, they call it a bridge hotel, but it's basically a really nice hotel where you are locked in your room for a quarantine period, um, a minimum of seven days, um, but you have to pass a, a PCR test to get out. And when I, after spending seven days alone in a room with no English speaking TV, except um, Sky News and a Japanese documentary channel. Um, and I couldn't make any outgoing phone calls because he had no ro international roaming plan on his phone and the Wi-Fi was no good. Um, and nothing to do and very little luggage. I had a rope. I had a, I had a canyon fire rope and I was, I was laughing about how I could rig it up and try to, you know, make a Swiss seat and rappel off the deck, the balcony and, and escape. But um, <laughs> the fantasies you come up with when you have that much time to kill. But uh, yeah, so after that, I, they took me, they released me with a note and I had to go back to the, um, the airport and purchase a ticket home, a new ticket, and then take another PCR test. And I failed it. And they took me back to the hotel. 
And at that point, I was able to use WhatsApp to have some conversations with my son-in-law and my daughter. And he's a, a doctor, an emergency room doctor, and he's treated COVID patients before. And he, he looked up some stuff for me. And it was one of the things we were finding is that you can fail a PCR test for weeks or months. You need an antigen test because a yeah. PCR can continue to just tell you that you're going to fail. And that's why they don't do that here in the U.S. A lot of the hospitals, when they release people, you finish your quarantine and, and they don't retest you. They just release you because you're not contagious, but you won't pass a test. So I was just devastated because I can't live in a hotel by myself. Anyone who knows me knows I'm much too hyperactive. There was no room to do anything. Um, and uh, with the time zone, like nobody was calling me. So... I could get incoming calls if anybody bothered, but nobody did um, other than my husband who was just, you know, uh, freaking out. So I did a lot of push-ups and a lot of sit-ups and a lot of planking. Um, but um, yeah, so, and I had a rope to practice not work. Um, but I, um, I convinced a woman from the call center, they would call every two days and ask how you were doing and what was your temperature. And this, this woman, Marta from the, the Lyric Islands COVID call center called me and I just told her, Hey, I'm do I'm reading this and I could fail this for weeks. You can't keep me here forever. Please send somebody over to this hotel to give me an antigen test. And she said, we don't have any protocol for that. And I said, please just talk to someone over there and get someone to come give me an antigen test because I, I can't stay here. And she called back and she said, we have somebody on their way right now. And um, so uh, I got a knock on the door and two medics walked in and forcefully shoved a Q-tip up one side of my nose and gave me a big nosebleed and left. <laughs> and about three hours later, Marta calls back just giddy, giggling. She was so happy. And she's like, you know, Danielle, you're negative. <laughs> so they <laughs> The doctor from the hospital wrote a letter stating that I uh, could be uh, safe to travel. And so um, I went back to the airport and purchased a third ticket. And uh, yeah, so I, I, I bought a ticket from Ruling to Barcelona. And then from Barcelona, I flew um, uh, to Paris and then back to LAX. And Brian was there to pick me up. And it was quite the adventure. I will say, um, until the country that you're visiting does not have a mandatory quarantine COVID test situation, I would not travel again internationally, which is unfortunate because I had several dance competitions that I wanted to go to that I don't think I'm going to be attending. And hopefully Brazil will have a... Uh, some kind of policy that will make it work out because if they have the same kind of policy of mandatory quarantine with a test, I won't go to Brazil. So, yeah, it was. Yeah. And during all of this, I was asymptomatic. So I'm tired, but it's probably more likely because I spent. You're just stuck in a hotel room and can't do anything. You're like not active at all. You know? Yeah. Um. Quite the experience, so. I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I mean, 
is the time, you know, this is the price that you pay. If anybody asked yeah. me, would I do it again? Would I, would I go back again? I paused because, you know, I got to see my daughter. She joined us and it, and it was her climbing trip. Um, and the canyons I did were gorgeous. And um, the people that I with were, were wonderful. And I have this interesting experience and story. And our lives are made up of the stories of our experiences, whether they're beautiful or whether they're hardships. They still make up kind of the, the colors of who we are. And so right now, I would say I would not have gone again. But in a week or two, I would probably be like, yeah, I would have done it again just because. Right. Once the hotel stay and COVID thing gets out of your mind and you're reflecting on the canyons, it'll be a totally different experience. But even the hotel thing was an experience. You know, it's a, it's a story, right? Yeah. So sure. I mean, we would go out onto the terraces because you couldn't leave your room but we each had a little terrace and there was five floors of people about 55. I think were in the hotel, mostly people that were coming in the cruise ships and hotel was on, was on the beachfront. So it looked out over the Harbor with the sailboats and the big cruise ships. It was a beautiful hotel and a beautiful view. Um, but we would go out onto the terrace, not everybody, but there was like maybe seven of us that would kind of go out in the morning that were on my floor and we'd look across at each other and be like, you know, hola. <laughs> and it was, it was interesting. There was a guy who spoke Italian, but not English. And there was a guy that was Swiss who spoke a little English, a lot of Italian um, and French. And there were people above me that he would speak German to. Um, and so you had all these interesting languages. There was a couple guys from India. They'd been there the longest. One of them was on his third week of failing COVID tests. Um, oh, it spoke perfect English. But I have to say that Swiss guy, I never learned his name. He spoke very, very little English. But he was in misery because he's a smoker and he had no cigarettes. And so... <laughs> If if anyone new ever came out to the balcony, you would hear him going, hey, 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 <laughs> trying to get their attention, yes, asking, do you have any cigarettes? Um, uh, yeah, I felt bad for him. Do you yourself speak other languages or no? Um, I speak a very little Spanish. A yeah. very little. Um, so... And uh, when I was in high school, I spoke French, but I speak so little French now that I, I really have to be immersed with it for a little while. And I can speak enough to like tell people that I don't speak it, to tell them that I speak English, to ask for things politely, like where's the bus stop or can I get a cup of coffee? Um, but I don't <laughs> well enough to understand what they're saying when they talk to me. Yeah. Whereas in Spanish, um, traditional Spanish, I understand almost everything that's being said to me. It doesn't mean my, there's like a, a pause when I go to, to, to speak it myself. Like I have to form the sentence, remember the words and then express it. And I find that takes way too much time. Um, but as far as uh, being said, I, I have pretty much no problem understanding what's being said. Um, uh, and when we are in, when we're in Sierra de Guara, which is in Northern Spain, um, I can speak Spanish to most of the people in, in a, in a preschool way, you know, baby, baby Spanish. Um, yeah. yeah. 
but we've we've over the years with international canyoning we've formed quite a few friendships in different countries and I, Spain and and Switzerland would be the ones that we have the most friends there that it makes it makes traveling really nice because we have people locals that we can do canyons with and I think that's really important if you do want to travel internationally you need to go with locals or connect with them in some way um, or you need to get a guide. You just do because it's going to improve your trip a lot. And even if you just want a guide for your first canyon just to get your feet wet and kind of have a contact that can give you information about where the best canyons are or how to access them. Um, you know, some countries don't require it, but it, it, they, in general in Europe, guides don't charge very much. And so it's, if, if it's someone's first trip, I would highly recommend that they consider it. And find a good one. Pascal Van Duren is the best, I, I mean, I think he's the best guide in the world. So um, he's a great contact for pretty much any of the European canyons and also for Albania. But um, we have a couple guide friends in Spain that if anybody was interested, I would recommend. I've never been able to pay them because they consider us friends and so they won't take money from us. But um, uh, they are fantastic canyons with. And the Spanish in general are, they're they're abrupt in personality. They're a bit type A, which I can identify with because I'm a little like that. Um, it might be off-putting to someone in general, but um, oh man, they're just the most honest people. It's a really great country to visit. The food is spectacular. I don't know. I don't really have anything else except for my main questions I ask everyone. Do you have anything else? Um, yeah, I would like to just touch real quick on training because I think it's something in this sport we should we should always, uh, mm. you know, kind of talk about a little bit. Um, in the United States, people generally in the past have been introduced to canyoning um, uh, and taken a class, whether it's through some place like Zach um, after a guided experience that they loved and they're like, okay, now I want to take a class or whether uh, they take a class from the ACA or from Uber or uh, any of these other schools. Um, there's a, an online program now that Andrew Humphreys put together called the V7 Academy. Uh, people can Google that. It's for C-class canyoning. I think it's probably gonna be the gold standard um, here in the US. Um, and it's very translatable for European style of canyoning, which is different, but Anyways, I see people asking often about whether or not you need training and people on Facebook will give opinions that no, you don't need training. You need to just have a good mentor. Um, well, a mentor is a trainer. So if you have a good mentor, you actually are getting training. Um, and how do you evaluate what a good mentor is? How do you know if the person that's mentoring you knows what they're doing or has um, is responsible to you? Because uh, if they're not being paid, um, or you haven't connected with them through some kind of business, they, they don't have liability. Uh, it's an informal mentorship. And those can be fantastic and lovely, and I've mentored people. But in general, um, if you have the ability to take a class or to do some kind of training, whether it's online or otherwise, I would highly recommend it. This is a dangerous sport. Uh, I've had friends die in this sport. And it seems that we do have a few deaths every year, which might not be um, outrageous in uh, comparison to other sports. But when you consider how few people are canyoning, 
Um, it's an inherently very dangerous sport. It is dynamic and active. We do not have always uh, have access to fixed anchor systems. So by nature, by the very nature of the sport, we are moving and our equipment is moving and a fall um, or a collision with a rock or an obstacle in this sport can, can be life altering or ending. So I just would caution anyone that, that thinks this is just a fantastic sport they wanna try, absolutely try it, but really get some training as well. Um, and there's lots of ways to get training. There's a, for, for women, we are really lucky. We have an organization called Canyoneering Chicks. And this is an online group that does amazing trainings and networking. And um, so that's uh, something that people can take advantage of. But um, I think that because this sport is, is easy to get into, you just need a harness and a rope and a helmet. I think it opens the door for people to think that maybe they're uh, more advanced than than they are needing to be for when shit goes wrong. It That's does. well said. Um, I'm glad you brought that up because Tom is often quoted on Facebook by saying, like, don't be a beginner leading a beginner. And there's often times where people do get into that. You know, I did this cool thing. I can show you how when they really haven't refine their skills and then they're like oh there's this amazing canyon it's going to take us 14 hours will be it'll be the baddest coolest thing we've ever done and maybe get themselves into a situation where they're not quite skilled enough to do that canyon where yeah. maybe if they would step back and take a class get the skills you know start at level one go up in your canyoning um then maybe your situation would end up a lot better for everybody involved yeah, I mean, I think that uh, I think that everywhere in every canyoneering community, there are people who chase the the big ratings, and um, uh, there's different rating systems. If you if you look at uh, like descent can um, descent canyoning, I think is what it is. It's the the Spanish one. Um, that Descente Canyon, I think, uh, that one uses like a 4.2 or 3.9 or, you know, it has a kind of a numerical system for rating them that has to do with user friendly. You know, people have said this is what we think it is. Um, and then, you know, we have kind of have that with Rope Wiki. Um, but what's really important is the other rating, the one that says whether it's an R or an X. And every once in a while you get a, a population of uh, young enthusiasts who are chasing the R's and the X's. They, it's like they want to do the canyon with the most number of rappels or they want to do the, the R canyons and they're, that's what they're looking for. And, um, and I remember that because I was there. So been there, done that. I get it. I'm not putting you down if you're chasing ours, but, um, but hopefully you'll live long enough in the sport and you'll stay with it and not burn yourself out or get injured because you want to get to the place where you actually don't care about the rating. You just care about the beauty and the experience. And so, um, you know, I, I remember I would repel everything and somebody would, my husband would say, it's a down climb. And I would say, yeah, but we're here to repel. And then, you know, years go by and you've done, you know, a thousand canyons and uh, you're trying to just down climb all of them because the, the, the experience is about the actual canyon 
and it's not about mm -hmm. how I'm doing anymore. And um, I overheard someone I was in a canyon in Death Valley with, and I said, oh, this is just a down climb. And he said, yeah, but we're here to rebel. And um, <laughs> I thought, oh, sweet baby, I remember that. <laughs> we had that exact experience this weekend because we were doing a local canyon and we didn't, there was like one spot that's normally a down climb, but there was water there. And I was like, I don't know how deep it is and we don't want to get wet. And there's this beautiful tree over here. We can just set up a rebel. Yeah. And, you know, like we're here to rebel. And my husband's like, oh, we can down climb this. And so he down climbed it. But the other three of us repelled it because we didn't want to get wet. And he didn't get wet, but whatever. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, we we go we evolve in this sport um, and it's been evolving the sport in general. Um, the United States is a young country and canyoning in the United States is a very young sport. It's in its infancy. We are amazing at inventing equipment. We are, I think, uh, way ahead of the, the curve in terms of um, uh, developing unique tools and methods of descending canyons without having to leave uh, tat or bolts or hardware behind um, yeah. using you know ghosting techniques that uh, people like Taylor Aravis or Tom Jones have um, developed that are safe and um, you know technically super useful um, and these are things that are very specific to the United States because when when you do do a lot of international travel um, they they approach canyoning in a very different way they have it's an older sport. It's been around much longer. It started really in the late 1800s, um, was the first canyon descended um, and, uh, as, a, as a canyon. Um, and so they've been doing it for a lot longer and they have a lot of equipment, but they don't ghost canyons. This is, very, this is something very specific to, to the United States. Uh, and I think we are going to start sharing more of our knowledge with them. I know that Pascal has been doing canyons in Algeria and using things like sand traps and water traps. And I've uh, given fiddle to my friends in Spain. And um, I know that Thor McCrumble thinks that our ghosting techniques that we're using in the Pacific Northwest that he saw were extremely useful and, and a beautiful way to treat canyons that maybe aren't going to receive a lot of uh, traffic. So I think we're gonna share more knowledge with Europe. And I'm hoping that American canyoners that are descending C-class canyons will start to adopt more of the European styles because their styles of not using webbing in canyons um, when it's not necessary um, and the way that they bolt and the hardware and the way they set up hand lines um, to me is, is a little bit uh, cleaner and uh, safer. So uh, requires less um, replacement. Yeah. So I'm hoping we'll get more people traveling back and forth and we'll get more shared knowledge. And at some point it'll all blend together. But in general, the United States, we're, we're very young with this. We've, you know, most people have been doing it since like, you know, just the last decade or two, so. Right. I know Andrew Humphreys is trying to change a lot of the bolt situations in Ure specifically to be more of the European style setups. He so did. That yeah. On. When we were there, he apparently he's moved. I just found out he's moved to Seattle area now. Um, yeah. In the United States, I think right now, um, 
all of that uh, energy that goes on with the beautiful desert slot canyons in, in Utah and, and um, that area, that kind of energy that has created so many hundreds of canyons is now starting to happen in the Pacific Northwest. And we have this group with uh, Tiffany Lynn and Jake Huddleston and um, Doug Heckler that are building gorgeous routes and... Yeah. Uh, they are very much using European methods in terms of how they're bolting and how they're setting them up. And um, they are an incredibly well-trained uh, group. It's exciting to see what they're doing. Um, oh, I could just mention so many names. Madeline Huang is one of the young uh, canyoners that we met who has fantastic skills and fantastic energy. And um, there's just dozens of them. So if I, if I didn't mention one of them, you know, these are key people that are opening things and, and organizing and uh, um, they're using the training through the V7 Academy, which is the, the one that Andrew Humphreys does. Okay, but, cool. I did have um, Tiffany, Jake and Doug on, I think in November uh, is when I aired their episode. It was really cool. Really great to talk to them. They're great. They're really fun. And um, that's a, that's a great area to go run canyons in, you know, weather you you got to pay attention to the weather because it rains a lot up there. Um, the other place we've gone, which I'm not going to travel to until COVID's over, but North Vancouver has fantastic canyons. It's cheap to fly up there. Um, you can also fly to like, I think it's Washougal, Washington, and then just take a bus across the, the border or rent a car. Mm -hmm. and, but uh, that area has fantastic canyons as well. And there's a, a guy up there who's doing some classes and does some guiding and is trying to develop a community in Vancouver. Um, so we've been there, I think three times. So, and I don't repeat canyons. So when I go back to an area, it's special, you know? Huh. So the Sea to Sky Highway uh, on your way to Squamish in North Vancouver is a destination that I think every human being on the planet deserves to have. It's gorgeous. Wow, that's okay. Put that on my list for sure. Yeah. <laughs> So it's what is your reason for not repeating canyons? Oh, man. I mean, there's 5,000 canyons in Spain. There's a lot of canyons. You don't need to repeat them. Right. You, could, you know, it's like uh, if you had the option to wear the same dress every day or wear a different dress every day, you know? I mean, we do have our comfortable things that we like, but the thing about canyoning is seeing the wonder of a painting, you know, that you've never seen before and just being able to enjoy it. And if you have a favorite and you want to go back again and again, yeah, but, um, but in general, a canyon would have to be pretty special for me to want to repeat it because there's another canyon that I haven't done. And so you have to pick. So if I lived long enough to do all of the great canyons, then yes, I would go back and repeat. And that said, um, we had the opportunity in, in November to run uh, Gamchi in, uh, and, and Trommelsbach in Switzerland. Um, and those are canyons that are, you know, under glaciers and, oh my God, Gamchi is to me was the most beautiful experience of my lifetime. It just was fantastic. So I would run that canyon again, maybe, you know, it's one of the, you know, the experience was so amazing maybe on the second time it would detract from it. So I don't know. And then there's a canyon in the Dolomites called La Vielia. It's the one that's the header picture on my book. That canyon is otherworldly. Yeah. 
it's otherworldly. So. Wow. Nice. That one every day. I'd live there. I just, you know. <laughs> and we've done some fun stuff. Um, we ran Cresciano from the top in, in Ticino and had a helicopter drop us off. And that was pretty fun. The helicopter driver was barefoot and he just had the window open, the, the doors open. And he just, we jumped in the helicopter and he ripped up the canyon. It took like 30 seconds to get to the top. And we just jumped out of the helicopter and started the wow. canyon. That, was, that would be awesome. It's crazy. The helicopters are like uh, 180 euros each to go to the tops of these canyons and four people. So it's like 45 euros a piece to get a Insta ride. <laughs> that sounds incredible. But, I mean, that would be fun too, just to add like the helicopter ride to the experience. There was a guy, AJ Petra had a, a group and one of his group was not running canyons. And we had seven in our group. So we had a spot and we're like, hey, he wasn't gonna run the canyon that day. He was just hanging out at the airport waiting for his friends. And we were like, well, we have an extra seat in our helicopter. Do you want to just ride the, like, we'll ask them, maybe they'll let you so they him ride up and then ride back. That's so, awesome. Yeah. That'd be fun. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, I know you need to get back to your kids. Um, there's just a few questions that I ask everybody at the end of the podcast. Okay. Number one, what is your favorite in Kenyan snack? Nuts. Any kind of specific nuts or just mixed nuts? Just a nut mix like Trader Joe's, you know, the ones that have the M&M's nuts. And I'm a vegetarian, so, um, you know, there's not a lot of in Canyon snacks available to me. Bars and nuts. <laughs> you might really like the Kate's Real Food Bars. I just them when I went to Montana and I love them. I feel like they're better than Cliff Bars because there's not so many like preservatives and they're more just like real food. <laughs> Cliff Bar. Yeah, yeah, I'm not a fan. Yeah, me either. <laughs> okay, after Canyon Beverage. Well, water or coffee. I mean, I would have to say the best after ca uh, Canyon Beverage I've ever had was uh, a red beer in Squamish after doing Box Canyon. That was a really good beer. So like, you know, if you're with your canyoneering group and you're all gonna go out somewhere and you go to a nice brewery and you find a small local one, uh, that's a pretty fun experience. But in general, what I usually would have would be, you know, a hot cup of coffee if I'm cold or a, just a ton of water. Yeah. Um, any safety advice you would like to leave, leave us um, with? Yeah. So keep your eyes open, check yourself before you go off the edge of the rope. Um, especially if someone's distracting you by talking to you. Um, or if there's water, it's very, water is very distracting. You got a big waterfall, you get distracted and maybe you didn't properly put the rope through your carabiner. And so even though it was in your descender, the second you wait it, you're just going to fall. So check yourself and if you get in the habit of checking your teammates, you can ask them to check you as well. And it's, it feels kindergarten, you know, that's the thing you learn, like point to the harness latch, point to the helmet snap, point to the, you know, carabiner is, is your thing locked. Like all of those little basic things you learn when you take your first class, mm -hmm. you still need to do them. 
you can do them invisibly. You can just visually, when that guy's getting on rope, just stare at him. Just one, two, three, four, yep, he's good. Um, so, so just check yourself and take a pause. When things get scary, take a breath, reevaluate. Um, I would say, don't be afraid to ask for a belay and always give a belay unless someone says they don't want one or unless you see that a belay is not necessary, which sometimes it isn't. Um, my husband flies down the rope, so I'm not going to belay him within 50 feet of the ground because he's going to land on me. He's, he's too fast and smooth. So, you know, unless I think he needs one because I'm seeing a dangerous thing or there's chassis rock or, you know, whatever. Um, but you use your best judgment, but belays are great. Do them and do them well. Don't just hold the rope because you're supposed to do a belay. Actually hold the rope with an awareness that you might have to save this person's life in a minute. Um, yeah. Because I have, I have done that. I have had to actually save someone's life. And so has my husband. He's, he's had to belay somebody. I think he's three or four times that he's had to catch someone. So, um, and then uh, check the water before you jump. Yes. So, yeah, check it. And you can say, oh, yeah, but, you know, I've done, I've jumped this canyon, you know, it's Imlay or whatever. There's a floating log under that water. Like, you just don't know until you check it. So if you send, whoever doesn't like jumping, send them first. Let them check for you. Um, yeah. yeah. Unless you're really good at reading water. Yeah. You know, you're really good at reading water. Sometimes you'll see me, I'll climb down as far as I can get, and I'm just squatting and I'm just staring for a long time. And I'm trying <laughs> to figure it out because water can be extremely deceiving. It can look deep and it's not, or it can look shallow and it's deep. And mm. I would be disappointed that it was a jump that I missed because I was being careful than jumping into a pool and, you know, uh, fracturing my ankle and having to hobble out. Um, so have a plan and meet before you start any Canyon group. I've learned this from Sunny Lawrence. Um, have a plan, talk about it. What are, what's going to happen? What are we going to do? Um, what's our whistle system? Who has the first aid kit? Who has the emergency beacon? Um, make sure that the keys for the shuttle vehicles are at, yes. at the bottom of the <laughs> I think everybody's experience. You finish the canyon and you're like, okay, who's got the keys? They're right here. <laughs> So make sure that when you get to the bottom, that the keys are where they need to be. Um, mm -hmm. uh, you know, go with a good team. Go with good people that you get along with. Leave ego at home. It's not helpful. Ego and hubris get you killed. And we all have to check it. I have to check it. I've got a decent amount of ego. I have a very healthy ego. And um, my husband is much more humble. And so I have to check myself all the time. And the older I get and the longer I stay in the sport, I think the more I realize how much hubris I've had in the past and how much more careful and more humble I need to be. And it's a great personal growth journey. Um, and I have wonderful people to continuously remind me um, of where I can improve. Like Tom and Sunny, they're very <laughs> good at pointing out to me where I need to keep chipping away. And that is very well said to leave the ego at home. There's, I've run into that a lot on numerous occasions. I just wanted to say real quick, um, I haven't talked a lot about my husband, but Brian, for everyone that knows Brian, 
Um, he is absolutely my bedrock and I wouldn't be in the sport without him. And he's always at my side. He is the quiet, careful security officer that runs through the canyon with me and helps me and helps carry the load and carry the stuff and make sure that I'm not being stupid and foolhardy because I do have a tendency to kind of rush headlong into adventure. Um, and so he's good at reminding me that I'm not a superwoman, mostly. That's awesome. Dave's a little that way with me too. That's It's really great to finally find that person <laughs> to kind of level you out. It is. That's very cool. And we, um, like, we like different kinds of canyons. Brian loves Death Valley. He loves dry desert. He loves you. Uh, I love water. I like the feeling of almost drowning or jumping into a pool and just flying. And that, that sense of fear, the moment you realize that the jump was bigger than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> You're still falling. You're like, oh, oh shit. <laughs> I like water canyons. I haven't experienced a lot of water canyons, but I like those a lot. Yeah, I like them. I love water. I'm, a, I'm definitely a water baby. Yeah, fish for sure. Very cool. Um, I know you've been a lot of places in the world, but if you could go anywhere, where would you go and why? Uh, I would. I still have places on my bucket list. I would very much like to go to Croatia. Um. That, that area, Croatia and Montenegro, um, after we went to Albania, we'd gone with uh, Canyon Dave, and he had talked a little bit about some of those regions, and it sounded, it sounded beautiful. I know um, there's a lot of great climbing in Croatia, and my daughter's a climber, and so I think I'd, I would like to organize a family trip where we can canyon and she can climb. So, yeah. Very cool. I didn't even realize that there were canyons in Croatia, but there are canyons everywhere. So I'm sure <laughs> there's got to be. You know, I think as you go from, if you look at a map of the rock structure in Europe, as you go from the bottom boot of Italy and you stretch up and around to Austria, that whole kind of big curve of landmass is just littered with old waterways, watercourses. You know, that you've got. Mm -hmm some hills in there and some mountains in there and lots and lots of water and beautiful, nice and limestone and other kinds of, of rock um, that form fantastic canyons. And most of them are developed. So, I mean, all of them are developed really. So uh, it's easy to, it's easy to canyoneer in Europe. I mean, you canyoneer in Spain, there's a sign at the parking lot that gives you a map and tells you how much rope you need and where the trailhead is. I mean, there's literally a big laminated color sign for canyoning. It's such a popular sport there. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I'm kind of scared, but also excited for when that happens here. Right. I don't think it's ever going to happen here. I, we're, we're too, we're Americans. We have our own kind of unique way of approaching things. And we don't have the tourist, uh, we don't have the tourist approach towards climbing. So I don't think we'll have the tourist approach towards canyoning. I think it's very private and individualistic people that do those sports, do it as their own inner thing. And they, they, um, it becomes kind of part of their lifestyle. Um, yeah. so I, I actually don't think we're ever going to get to a place where we have tons of guides everywhere and tons of signage, but, um, we might have some. Well, like Zion area, just, I guess maybe. 
Mine is a little more popular in the guiding aspect than yours. <laughs> I feel like there's enough people that respect the the remoteness of it that they're going to fight having a lot of signage. Yeah. So it's worked it's worked well enough without it. So I hope that it stays that way. Zion, yeah. very near and dear to all of our hearts, and uh, uh, I hope I hope that the canyons and their beauty outlive all of us. Yeah, me too. For sure. <laughs> All right. Well, I know you need to get back to your kiddos and I hear the canyons calling. Yes. Thank you. Maybe we should go. All right. Good luck, everybody. Okay. There you have it. My interview with Danielle, who's ready for COVID to be over so we can travel internationally without having to worry about a negative or positive test and buying three return tickets home. Oh my God. I can't even imagine. Danielle, I'm so glad she wasn't actually sick and things turned out well for her. Um, anyway, if you would like more information on the CAC or her uh, meetup in April, I'm going to have links to all of that in the show notes. I also will put links for Pascal so we can get a hold of him if you want to travel internationally to Europe. Um, I only know him through working with him through Canyoneering USA. And my impression of him is he's an awesome guy. He probably knows a ton. Danielle said he's the best guy ever. So maybe I'll try to get him on the show. <laughs> we'll see. I do have a ton of great interviews coming up. I think you guys will all be excited. If you would like to know who is upcoming and who I have interviews with and want to ask them questions, you can do so on my Patreon. Patreon-thecanyonsarecalling.com um, that's just a secure platform where creators can get some compensation for all the work that we do to help you guys enjoy these stories. So if you'd like to do so. Also, if you like stickers, beer glasses, and dog toys made out of canyoneering rope, um, that is the canyonsarecalling.com. I have canyoneering snack links and other resources and things on there too. Shout out to Julie Sherman. She's going to help me with the website because that's actually the part I hate the most. And so she's going to help me with that. It's going to be getting a facelift soon. I am super excited about that. So bear with me. I'm still learning. <laughs> it's been fun. I did get an email from a fan that told me that I'm getting better with my interviews. So that's super exciting. It really warms my heart when people shout out and, and tell me that they like this stuff because... I just am mostly doing it for myself, but it's nice to know that it benefits other people too. So I probably got to get to work. I better stop rambling. The canyons are calling. I got to go. Actually, Emily Canyon Gear is calling, but I still got to go.